Houston, we have a podcast. Welcome to the official podcast of the NASA Johnson Space Center, episode 177, Welcome to Mars. I'm Gary Jordan, and I'll be your host today. On this podcast, we bring in the experts, scientists, engineers, astronauts, all to let you know what's going on in the world of human spaceflight. We continue our Mars monthly series on First Fridays. Last month, we chatted with uh, Doug Trent and Alicia Dwyer-Cianciolo to discuss landing on the Red Planet. Just before that, we had a trio of scientists to discuss living on Mars from the human perspective. We were able to chat in depth about the challenges of landing and living on Mars because Mars itself is, well, a challenging place to land and to live. So this episode is all about Mars. What is it about Mars that makes a human mission so challenging? So on this episode, we're exploring the geology, the weather, the atmospheric pressure, the environment that humans can be expected to live in for a human mission to Mars. Joining us to discuss the planetary science of Mars is Dr. Paul Niles, planetary geologist and analytical geochemist based at NASA's Johnson Space Center. You want to know all about Mars? This is your guy. So let's get right into it. What you need to know about the Red Planet on your next visit with Dr. Paul Niles. Enjoy. T-minus five seconds and counting. Mark. Dr. Paul Niles, thanks so much for coming on Houston. We have a podcast today. Great to be here. Hey, so this is all about the red planet itself. We've been doing this series called Mars Monthly, really taking a journey on a human mission to Mars from basically launching off of planet Earth, everything it takes to rendezvous with planet Earth, or with, uh, sorry, with Mars, uh, and then everything about the journey along the way. We've even, we've even addressed what it's like to land on Mars and even live on Mars. But this, we're going to take a step back from the human side of things, definitely considering it as we're going through uh, some of these different aspects. But today we're going to focus on the geology, the weather. So if you were going to visit Mars, this was your, vaca- your vacation, let's just call it, uh, for, 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 the, for the layman, but maybe for the astronauts, their mission. Uh, you know, what are some of those things that you can expect? Paul, I wanted to start off first, before we get into just Mars in general, by understanding how you got to this point of being, uh, I don't know if we, we should call you the resident expert here at Johnson Space Center for, for Mars, everything Mars, but how did you get into this field, really understanding um, and focusing your, your career path on understanding a different planet? Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm by far not the only resident expert. Um, <laughs> we've got a, a really uh, vibrant group of uh, Mars scientists here uh, who've worked on almost all of the the Mars mission since um, the two rovers, twin rovers, landed in 2003. So, wow. the, um, so, so we've got a, a great group of people who are, who are experts in um, understanding the local geology of Mars. Um, yeah, so for me, uh, I just was, in, you know, in college was trying to find my way, and, uh, and I knew that I liked science, but I didn't, didn't want to be a physicist or a chemist. I kind of, and I liked the natural world, and I liked hiking, and, and, uh, and geology just sort of rang out for me. Um, the other thing that I knew that I liked was space, and 
when I found out that there were that people study rocks on other planets, that it was like a perfect, you know, hallelujah <laughs> moment, moment of clarity, I guess you call it. Yeah. And uh, and so yeah, that's that's what pushed me um, towards towards doing this. Well, let's just say you're you're taking your uh, your extended hiking trip, right? For those hikers out there that want to enjoy the outdoors and they want to take their first steps on this on this whole new world, um, let's just say we're, we're an astronaut and we're taking that first step out of our landing vehicle. Uh, we've landed on the surface of Mars. We're taking our first step out onto the Martian surface. What are going to be some of those first things that we notice about? the terrain, the the view, the weather, the uh, you know, just the composition, the way that everything looks. What are gonna be some gonna be some of our first things that we notice when stepping onto the Martian surface? Yeah, so Mars is the uh one of the most Earth like planets and the first thing I think that everyone would notice is just how similar it seems. Um hmm. the you know, the Mars day is, is almost the same as an Earth day, only 37 minutes longer. Um, the year is, is quite a lot longer, but the uh, axial tilt of Mars is really, really similar to the Earth. So, and that's the thing that gives us our seasons. So, so any, on any spot on Mars, you're going to be in a summer or a winter or something like that. And... Um, and so it's going to look just, just a lot similar. Two of the biggest differences that you're going to notice right away is the gravity and the atmosphere. The gravity is about a third of, of, of what is on Earth. And, and so that would, I mean, I, no one really knows what that exactly is going to be like, but I imagine it's not quite looking like when you're bouncing around on the moon, if you've seen the videos of the astronauts on the moon. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I think you would still have quite a spring in your step. Um, the biggest, the biggest difference is definitely the atmosphere. The atmosphere on Mars is is very very thin, um, and and so you would need to have a spacesuit and wear, uh, you know, protective clothing for the, for the cold. Um, it is it's very very cold on mm. Mars. So let's uh, let's focus on the gravity first. Um, what do we know about the gravity of Mars? Uh, kind of relative. You, you talked about it's just a little bit more than the Moon. Um, you know how 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 it would feel, uh, and then kind of blending that question into maybe how it shaped the geology of of Mars, if if at all. Yeah, it's it's been really hard. I mean, as a geologist, it's without a whole lot of other examples. It's hard to know what, how the gravity affects the geological processes. Um, mm. we, we make sometimes, for example, um, trying to understand how the wind affects things. Well, obviously the rocks and the pebbles and the sand are, are going to be lighter, but then you also have a lighter atmosphere. So, so it's hard to know, okay, well, there was you know, a lot of debate about, for example, whether or not sand would get blown around at all um, or whether the sand dunes that we see on Mars are are just have been there for billions of years. It turns out that you can, in fact, the, the sand does get blown around in these um, wind wind events, but it's a lot harder than you think. And so people would try and simulate this in in the lab, and they would use something. They would use like walnut shells and stuff like that. <laughs> um, so so uh, it, it's really it's really hard to get your your handle on because the gravity could affect 
you know, any number of things. Yeah. Um, how water flows on the surface, uh, you, you know, landslides, you know, everything that you can imagine. Now let's uh, let's focus on the uh, the uh, atmosphere. Was that was the other thing that you you mentioned? Um, one of the first things you you mentioned when talking about the atmosphere was was it's pretty cold. Is that because of the atmosphere, or is it because of the position of the of Mars? Give us kind of an example of uh, of what what you mean by cold on Mars. Yeah, yeah. So so the atmosphere of Mars is uh, it, it's pretty cold. I mean, it's not it's not you know, un- unreasonably cold if you imagine places on the Earth. So um, one of the, you know, you know, if you, it's, you know, it can get much, much colder than places on the Earth. So down to minus 80, almost up minus 100 um, degrees Celsius. Um, but uh, it, it can be quite warm at, at, on the surface, um, minus 20. I call that warm. <laughs> minus 10. The the uh, the surface can actually get above freezing, um, so so it can be uh, it can be you know moderately temperate. The the main problem with the atmosphere, because it isn't so thick, is it doesn't hold in the heat as well as the Earth. So you don't get that you know nice thermal blanket effect. And then of course Mars is is much farther away from the sun than the Earth, so so you get less sunlight and uh and and uh warmth from uh from the sun yeah so um you, you talk about the atmosphere maybe being uh maybe a little bit thinner so when you say cold are there large temperature temperature swings from day to night and then um you also mentioned something about seasons too so i guess there's a, there's a difference there yeah actually the uh the seasons can be pr- pretty uh, hectic. But one of the interesting things about Mars is that the atmosphere is made up entirely of CO2 gas. So, and it turns out we, we actually have almost the same, you know, amount of CO2 gas here on Earth and on Mars. Um, on Earth, it's only 300 ppm, 400 ppm parts of the atmosphere. On Mars, it's the entire atmosphere. Mm. And then in the winter, the polar regions get cold enough they actually start condensing CO2 on the surface. Basically, CO2 is dry, when it becomes solid, is dry ice. So basically you get snow, CO2 snow or CO2 ice forming on the surface of the planet. Um, and so the whole atmosphere starts to condense out of the, out of the air. So you actually get big differences in pressure um, between the summer and the winter, the, the parts of the planet that are in the summer um, and are are warmer relatively versus the parts of the, of the planet that are in the winter. So we actually um, sent a spacecraft called the Phoenix Lander um, to the northern sort of polar, sort of the, the equivalent of the Arctic Circle on Mars. And, um, and that w- we knew was going to be a short mission because after, once the winter hit, we, it got, became covered with all, Almost up to a meter of ice and snow, so so that is uh, definitely a, a pretty alien aspect of Mars. <laughs> In fact, one of the one of the best places to visit, I would think, would be the polar hood, sort of walking around on these uh, CO2 ice deposits. I think it would be pretty amazing, um, although pretty difficult to do um, with the current technology as far as um, what we need for warmth and 
and uh, and spacesuit uh, technology. Yeah, so when you're looking at those pictures of Mars and you see those what look like ice caps, the, the white parts that kind of uh, are little, you know, they're just on the caps of Mars that is mostly, you know, the red planet, orange planet, um, that that is CO2. Now, when you're talking about temperatures, um, I mean, you, you talk about it being difficult based on the current technology. Is it really that is it really that cold that now you you're going to have some engineering challenges if you wanted to explore those p- polar regions? Yeah, absolutely. It's pretty cold to be able to do that. It's not it's not crazy. I don't think. I, and I'm not an app uh, engineer, so yeah. And uh, certainly, this t- this isn't one of the places that we've been talking about going to, um, because it's just not 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 one of the places that's got the the highest science output. Um, but, uh, yeah, absolutely. It's um, dry ice is, is super cold. And if you were walking, if you were walking around on it, um, it would be pretty intense. Um, and, uh, to be clear that it turns out that the poles on Mars actually are mostly made up of water ice. So after in the summer, when the atmosphere, then the dry ice goes away, you still are left behind with um, uh, water ice at the poles. That's the white, small white thing that you see in most pictures. And then you also have a lot of water ice under the surface in uh, permafrost. So, so there's a lot of uh, water ice, which is much more Earth-typical um, involved as well. And in fact, you can get layering of dry ice underneath water ice on the poles. And one of the interesting things that happens is you see these geysers that erupt. So basically, the sunlight filters through the water ice and heats up the dry ice underneath it. And that becomes CO2 gas. It's pressurized underneath the surface, and then it would erupt through cracks in the surface and blow these giant... And what they look like are these sort of black, spidery-looking things on the surface where dark sand has erupted on top of the, uh, of the brighter surface. You're making a case for visiting these polar regions. A lot of cool stuff happening up there. Uh, the uh, the water ice is, is very very interesting. You you mentioned though that uh, it would be there's a lot of engineering challenges that come with uh, seeking out some of these polar regions. And then you mentioned that there are possibly more scientifically interesting areas. So if you were uh, if you were to focus maybe on landing at these scientific uh, scientifically interesting areas first. Would you would you have uh, you know uh, water ice that you can go and, and check out? Um, what what are some of the other interesting science? Uh, I guess interesting parts of science that you you would have at, at this landing site. Yeah, so so the there are a lot of interesting targets that we would want to tar- uh, uh, target with uh, human human missions mm-hmm. um, and and at the different things that have been discussed. Um, and then we've also just, uh, explored uh, several of these places with uh, rovers and uh, spacecraft already. So um, one of the kind of really interesting places that you might want to go um, are this, similar to where the Curiosity rover is today, these mountains um, or large mounds of layered material, which are made up of hydrated uh, sulfate, uh, among other things. The hydrated sulfate is interesting geologically because it indi- indicates the past presence of water. 
And so that that's a really interesting target to try and understand the history of water on, on Mars. The other thing that people have talked about using it for is if you get a lot of the sulfate you could and, uh, you know, pile it into a, an oven, you can heat it up and recover the water from there. And if you've got the right kind of sulfate, that can be a, a pretty effective way of harvesting water on Mars. Um, now, we think that there are actually a lot of older relics, uh, ice deposits that might be accessible in the mid-latitude, sort of not quite the equator, but, you know, about 45 degrees or, or so, a little bit less, 30 degrees, um, where there's ice underneath the surface that would be accessible if you drilled down into it. Um, so, so there's actually a lot of places where you can, if you can combine the presence of ice and uh, uh, scientific um, uh, targets, um, it could be really good for uh, for human explorers. Yeah. So. Um, uh, oh, go, go. I was, I was going to kind of chime in and talk about the water thing, um, because one of the things going through my head is, you know, you're talking about there, there is this presence of water, we can dig for it. I'm sure there's some scientific value to uh, understanding more about this water, but is it, you, you said there's value to it being for human missions. It, is it, you know, is there enough, I'm trying to kind of quantify how much, how much water we're talking about. Is there enough to support say, you know, having uh, enough drinking water and, and, and um, I guess you can separate uh, hydrogen and oxygen to generate uh, oxygen for a habitable environment. Is there enough water where the water in situ can support uh, a human mission? Um, you know, just kind of get, trying to get an idea of, of the quantity of water you're talking about. One of, one of the things that we really... Uh, want to figure out in the next 10 or 15 years is exactly how much water Got it. Is, okay. is there. Um, we're talking about a couple of different options for trying to understand uh, what the buried ice looks like, um, how, what, you know, how pure is it, and uh, how, how far away from the surface. Um, we've, we've sent several radar uh, instruments in the past uh, 10 or 15 years that have given us a really tantalizing idea about what the ice looks like. And we definitely have strong evidence that shows that this ice is present in these mid-latitude regions and, um, and can be fairly close to the surface, um, so within, you know, 10 meters or so, which, which wouldn't be too difficult to try and drill into. Um, there also have been, you know, several discoveries uh, showing that the, there is pure ice exposed in cliff faces um, in these regions as well. So, so you can see these exposed cliffs uh, with pure, relatively pure ice uh, exposed, and, and then near the top, a, a layer of, of, uh, of sediment, regolith, uh, whatever you want to call it. So, so it, it seems like and definitely in particular areas we can identify, yes, there, there is a place where you could do this, where you could drill not too far and reach uh, pure ice, which then you could set up something called a Rodriguez well, which is basically a well where you drill down into pure ice, and then you just pump hot water down there, and the hot water melts the ice into like sort of a bulb, 
um, and gives you a bulb of liquid water, and then you would get that liquid water and pump some of it back up again. So you'd be continuously pumping hot water down to keep it liquid and then be recovering some of that water um, for your for your base. Um, we hope that the base that we or or the habitat that would be there um, would not use too much uh, water. It would be recycle most of it. Um, mm. It's not going to do 100%. But so the main use for for water is definitely for the propellant, as you mentioned. That is very interesting. Now you talked about it being pure. Um, let's kind of dive into the soil a little bit, um, trying to get a better understanding of. Uh, this this dirt, or uh, you, I think you, you said maybe regolith. I don't know if, if it's dirt. You know, I think you know we're all speaking the same language. The Martian dirt. Um, yeah, dirt. So, just call it dirt. <laughs> yeah, that's. Let's just call it dirt. So so what is it? What's it, what's inside of it? What's it what's it made of? Um, understanding more about the soil there. Dirt dirt on Mars is mostly just ground up uh, volcanic rock. So. Something similar to what you would find in Hawaii if you went to Hawaii or Iceland. Um, you basically on Mars you have the main source of rocks is volcanic eruptions, and those can either be lava flows or they could be ash deposits. Um, and then and then those those rocks get ground up and uh, redeposited in different ways by the wind and by uh, water. And so there is some evidence for other kinds of minerals, these secondary minerals we call um, like sulfates or carbonates um, that would was are, are, are similar to sedimentary rocks on Earth, but we don't see real just pure versions of that um, like we see on Earth. So that on Earth we have these the oceans that help deposit large um, sedimentary rocks um, exposures. If anybody's been driven driven through West Texas, um, you you drive through these rolling hills, and it's just all carbonate deposits that are left over from a sea, the inland sea, that was in that region uh, millions of years ago. And and they, you know it's just you know hundreds of meters of it, uh, and it's just pure carbonate. And we hoped to find something like that on Mars, and we we just haven't found it. So. So it looks like Mars is pretty much made up of this uh, dirty regolith. And now one thing that – another thing I wanted to mention, since we were talking about melting water and, and, uh, and dirt on Mars, hmm. is uh, that some people think that there's poison, that the, that the Martian dirt is poisonous. Um, and that's based on this uh, discovery that was made by the Phoenix lander, which I mentioned before, um, which discovered that the Mars has perchlorate. In it, in it. Um, it's about one percent in in some places, maybe less than others, um, but certainly higher levels um, than what we see on Earth. And perchlorate can be uh, poisonous to, to humans um, if if uh, you know we ingest it. And it's used uh, actually as as rocket fuel uh, can be very reactive um, at when you heat it to higher temperatures. But uh, on Mars and in the dirt. Uh, it's really quite uh, not going to be a problem because it's very sol- soluble, so you can wash it away with water. So it, any any kind of dirt that you want to use for growing plants um, can easily be treated for perchlorate by just simply rinsing it. Um, and then this perchlorate can be can be filtered out of any drinking water using just typical um, water filtration, which you're going to be using anyway. Um, and so and so the perchlorate 
situation really isn't a problem. And even if none of that works and you still have astronauts getting uh, a little too much perchloria in their system, you can take iodine tablets, and that, that helps helps relieve the effect. So, so perchloria really among the challenges and the you know to human astronauts on Mars, the uh, perchloria is really not 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 a big one. So let's just say you're you're washing away the perchlorate on the soil there. What can you use the soil for? Can you use it to to grow plants? Can you use it to I don't know to to split apart and make rocket fuel? What can what can you or to build habitats? I don't know what what can you use the soil for? What's inside of it? Yeah, like like I said, the soil is uh, volcanic rock. So if you go to Hawaii, someplace like that, um, it's a really good example of w- what you're going to find on Mars, and. And you'll notice you'll know that in Hawaii the soil there is excellent for growing um, plants. Um, volcanic soil is extraordinarily fertile. So you have a with Martian soil you have an excellent base for um, growing plants. And you know the main problem just being uh, you don't have the bacteria and 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 life that that we have on Earth. So. So in order to really develop a soil, you'd, you'd have to also bring in that microbial uh, mass to help, help make it um, the, the best soil that it could be. Um, but, you know, that's certainly something that, that you can uh, grow alongside the plants um, in, your, in your habitat. Nice. So you, uh, there's enough that it's kind of rich, but you just need to supplement it with a couple extra microbes, and, and, you, can, uh, and you can actually use it to, to sustain like farming on Mars. It's pretty cool. Um, yeah, absolutely. Now, let's see. I think uh, another, uh, when thinking about Mars and, and uh, so, sort of how it is as a planet, I know one of the, one of the items is, is radiation. Um, you know, what, what you talked about the atmosphere being thin. And so, so what's the radiation environment like on Mars uh, for humans that are exploring its surface? Yeah, there are a lot of dangers on Mars um, to human explorers. When you talked about perchlorate just just a second ago, mm-hmm. um, the uh, the other ones are the radiation that you mentioned um, and dust uh, is another major one. And sometimes people think about wind as a problem, <laughs> um, like the uh, the movie The Martian. But um, but yeah, none of these things are really that bad if you are talking about visiting Mars. Um, so if you're only going to be there for uh, a little while, um, the, the one one kind of interesting way to think about Mars is is similar to Mount Everest. So um, if you go to Mount Everest, the the atmosphere at, at the top of Mount Everest is about 30 percent um, dense, as dense as um, it is at sea level. So so if you at sea level on Earth. Our atmosphere is something we call one bar, um, and then or a thousand millibars. Um, on the top of Mount Everest, we have about 350 millibars of atmospheric pressure, and then on Mars, it's about 10 to 15 millibars. So, so we're still about a factor of of 10 or 20 uh, less on Mars. Um, but you can kind of get the impression that um, it's not that much uh, different um, in mm-hmm. the end. And, and we talked about the temperatures. The temperatures at Mount Everest um, are similar, minus 20 to minus 80 um, Celsius. So, so the, that is a really similar thing. The, the one difference is the radiation, like, like you mentioned, 
on Earth we have um, a magnetic field that protects us from a lot of the radiation. And, and the denser atmosphere is another thing that really, really helps out. Um, but if you go to the space station, you're still within the magnetic field, but you get um, a, a lot more radiation than you would on the surface. And we think that the irradiation, in fact, we know the radiation on Mars is, um, is very similar to what we see on, at the space station. So, um, so that is, uh, so, you know, that gives us a lot of confidence to say that, you know, astronauts visiting Mars aren't going to be uh, impacted by radiation too much. I mean, you certainly get more radiation traveling to Mars and back from it. So the faster that you can go to and from, the better um, as far as, as radiation goes. Um, and another huge difference uh, between uh, Mars and, and the space station is would be uh, galactic cosmic rays. So the the radiation, the magnetic field of the Earth really protects us pretty well against galactic cosmic rays. Um, the higher energy ones, they they don't care about anything; they just go through. <laughs> um, so so we get that. But um, but you definitely be exposed to uh, more uh, galactic cosmic ray radiation um, on Mars than you would uh, otherwise. So so that's one of the interesting things that uh, we're going to help. We're going to learn about uh, with the Artemis program. Um, sending people to Gateway, um, which is uh, going to be us orbiting outpost around the moon, and uh, sending people to the lunar surface. That'll give us a lot of information about uh, what what that radiation environment is. And then once you're on the surface of the moon or Mars, you have that whole um, body protecting you know half of you, half of the half of the uh, it's blocking the radiation coming from half the solar system. So so. Um, that that provides a lot of protection, and um, and it's really quite manageable in the end. But if you were going to live on Mars long term, it's certainly something that you would have to deal with. We we're talking about radiation, and you said some of the some of the things uh, for people to watch out for when on the surface of Mars are, of course, the radiation, and then the other thing you mentioned was was dust. Um, so so what's the what's the dust environment like on Mars? Yeah, dust is uh, it's really challenging, I think. It, it's very, very thin uh, or small, um, so uh, it could pose an interesting challenge to mechanisms, um, seals, um, spacesuits. Um, the, certainly, we have had rovers on the surface for long periods of time, and those rovers uh, have dealt with the dust pretty admirably. So, so we know that it's definitely a problem that is, is uh, tractable. But it's definitely something to keep in mind. Um, the other major issue with the dust is that you have these global dust storms that happen every 10 or so years, and that um, can be pretty substantial as far as blocking out the sun. So if you are planning on using solar power for, for your mission, um, having these global dust storms that might kick up, um, and essentially the whole surface of the planet becomes um, clouded, uh, then then that's a real challenge. So um, a lot of our, our solar-powered missions, we have to plan for particular seasons for when we think that there won't be dust storms. And, and we're also heavily considering using nuclear power uh, for, for the human mission to, to save us, uh, the, to sort of help alleviate some of that risk. 
Um, although, you know, finding the right mix of different power is definitely something that, that we're going to want because you want to have a, uh, a happy, you know, mixture of different, different options available in different times. Yeah. One of the things that we've actually talked about is using perchlorate. If you could actually use perchlorate in a fuel cell to um, to help power things, so you could conceivably, you know, this isn't going to power the whole habitat, <laughs> but it could be something that that you know, in a for a rover roving across the surface, you could you could harvest your perchlorate and throw it in your in your uh, <laughs> in a fuel cell and help help do some extra um, range boosting. <laughs> Um, so, so you talked about these global dust storms, they happen, you said every 10 years, how long do they last? Yeah. yeah I mean, it's, it's not on a regular schedule that it, it oh, okay. happens when it wants to happen. Um, <laughs> and there's certainly dust storms every year that are smaller, um, and more regional. Um, but the global dust storms are more dangerous because they are longer lasting. So, oh. you know, they can last up to a month or, or even a little more than that. So, um, so it's definitely something that that you've got to watch out for. Got it. Okay, and and the the reason you would want to watch out for it is because of the impacts to potential uh, power systems where you're gathering power on the surface. But in terms of the the dust itself, uh, you know, blowing around on the Martian surface, from what I understand, it's not like you already referenced this was that scene from the Martian where the the dust is blowing real hard and the astronauts are crouching through because of the thin atmosphere. Uh, even though the dust is kind of flowing around, would it be feel more like a gentle breeze so it wouldn't really impact structures that much? Yeah, the the lower gravity one of the one of the impacts of lower gravity is the wind speeds actually can get pretty high. Oh. Um, the Viking the Viking lander got all the way up to about 70 miles an hour. But like you said, the, the density is so low that uh, it t- turns out that it doesn't really feel like much. So it's almost like a tenth of, of what of, so, so 70 miles an hour would feel more like a seven mile an hour breeze. Um, so, so it doesn't, uh, yeah. So, so the wind isn't, isn't really a big uh, factor. In fact, you know, we were, Spent a scientist spent a long time trying to figure out if the wind was even powerful enough to lift dust. I mean, lift um, sand grains. Um, so, so that was. So we definitely aren't going to be challenged by the uh, the wind speeds on Mars, even though they sound scary because they can be pretty pretty fast. Things are traveling fast. The the, uh, the air is traveling fast, but the uh, but the power is, isn't quite. Yeah, right. When you say when you say a 70, 70 mile an hour global dust storm, I mean the first my first reaction is fear. But you know, if you say it's like a seven mile an hour breeze, I guess it's it's not all that bad. Yeah. Um. So so more about the the Martian planet. Now you said you talked about the day night cycle. It's kind of it's a little bit similar to Earth, maybe a little bit longer by just a matter of like thirty something minutes. Um. Now how about like a an Earth year, you mentioned that it's, uh, did you say a year is significantly longer? Yeah, because Mars is uh, farther away from the sun, it, it has, it takes longer to get around. So, so the year is, is about six, it's about twice as long as the uh, Earth year. Um, and so, so all the seasons are a little bit longer, or, or long, longer than a, than a trust, than an Earth season. 
Hmm. So, um, as a result. But the day-night cycle is, is kind of um, similar enough where astronauts uh, could have just a, a near-regular sleep schedule. In fact, they get a couple extra minutes in their day, it sounds like. Yeah, actually, for the for some of these missions, we we uh, the scientists um, were actually operating on the, the Martian day night cycle um, to to operate the rovers because the rovers would wake up at the same time Martian time um, every morning and to receive commands and then and then it would broadcast back the data at the end of the day and so we would use the Martian nighttime when the rover was sleeping to create new commands at the end in the morning um, and. As a result, uh, we were working on a Martian day-night day schedule. Now, the Martian day-night, I mean, day is 37 minutes longer, um, so it turns out that it's really hectic to try and do that while you're working, while you're living on the Earth, because, <laughs> you know, pretty soon you're waking up at, you know, when you start waking up at 6 a.m., it's not long, you know, a couple weeks later you're waking up at 3 p.m., and then, you know, a couple more weeks, and and you're, you know, waking up at midnight. So, and that's really, really tough to, to maintain with the sunlight schedule. Um, but as, if you could figure out a way to, to stay away from the sun and, and create your own sunlight uh, schedule, the um, 37 extra minutes a day is, is pretty nice. I mean, if you think about <laughs> you have 40 extra minutes to sleep every night or 40 extra minutes every day to do something different, it's, uh, it's, it's pretty nice. That would be a really interesting experiment on the surface because for for the teams working the Martian uh, the Martian rovers, you were adjusting to the Martian day, but you still had the day night night cycle of Earth that maybe um, you know tripped you up a little bit because it was constantly changing. But maybe without the awareness of of the shift and change in Earth time, and you still have the sunrise and sunset approximately the same time, you know, plus 37 minutes on, on the Martian surface, it'll be really interesting experiment to see how humans adjust. Will they be completely fine? They'll just, uh, you know, get used to the 37 extra minutes, or will they kind of get start getting a little bit uh, fatigued uh, as time goes on, like you're saying, Think you know, because their body, their internal clock is telling them that it's 3 p.m., not 6 a.m. or something, you know? It'll be interesting. Yeah, I found it really... Um because I wasn't living at home, I was I was uh, living in a hotel, and and uh, I found it really nice. I, I'm also oh. a night owl, so you know it's, it's not hard for me to stay up an extra forty minutes every night, um, so that it, I'm getting the same amount of sleep. You know, I, I was able to just pretty much I could just stay up as late as I wanted to, as I could, basically, um, and I would always have. Um, you, know, you know, I got to the point where I was basically going to bed right after my shift. Um, instead of staying up another four or five hours, right? So like you'd normally do, mm -hmm. you usually get off work at like five and then you go to bed at 10. Um, you know, uh, I, would, I would be getting off my shift and going to bed, um, um, but I would try and stay up as late as I could, but then I would wake up and, and have, you know, a few hours before going to work. And it, it was, you know, really, uh, really nice. And, and as long as you could sort of, you know, keep, Stay inside and stay away from the sun. Um, <laughs> the, uh, yeah, without letting, because after a while that definitely does mess. With I, I, I figure, yeah, for sure. Now, on the, on this topic of day-night cycles on Mars, it got it gets me thinking about a Martian nighttime. You know, I think we see 
a lot of pictures of Mars from the surface thanks to some of the rovers that have been there. Uh, a lot of them take place a during the daytime, but I wonder what a Martian nighttime would be like. You know, is are the skies clear enough where you can see a lot of stars? Uh, could you could you be able to make out the Earth from the naked eye? What are some of the things you would see uh, in a Martian nighttime? We've we've been able to. Um, I mean, some of the great. There's been some just great imagery taken uh, from the rovers where you can wake them up in the middle of the night and take pictures. Um, and yeah, I mean, the the Earth looks like sort of if you imagine um, it's sort of like Venus, I guess, from that would look like looks from the Earth. So, so it's brighter than than Mars is in our sky. But you know, since the Earth, we can see Mars um, from here, you could see you can see the Earth from Mars. Um, the the other really interesting thing um, that you would see at night is the uh, the moons of of Mars. Hmm. So. There's two moons, and they have really weird orbits compared to what we're used to, right? Um, Phobos orbits every eight hours, and Deimos is, goes every 30 hours. Phobos is um, it's sort of like a mini moon, so you can sort of like you imagine what the moon looks like to us, sort of one tenth of that or or less, huh. um, and. And it it's zooming across the sky every eight hours, so <laughs> so you might see it pass. You know, um, may you could potentially see it pass. You know, you could see it set and then rise again all in the same night. Um, the uh, you know then Deimos uh, is every thirty hours. So so, but you definitely instead of um, you know the, it just it just moving across the sky as the as the planet rotates, you would see it move across the stars as well. So. So that's pretty neat. So for Phobos, you said every eight hours. Um, could you see it during the daytime too? Because that's enough time where you might be able to. I feel. I feel like you could maybe catch it during the day. Yeah, I mean, you know, um, it's just like trying to see the moon during the day. It's, yeah. Um, but it, you know, it's usually if it's lit well, then yeah. If the conditions it. are right, yeah. But you can't. You could possibly. That's interesting. Uh, you talked about some. Um, Let's see. Uh, when when you were talking about just way at the beginning of our talk, the different landing sites, and we talked about some of the things that were um, scientifically interesting. If you were to land on Mars, you would want to land at some of the spots that were that were more scientifically interesting. We talked about uh, uh, water ice a little bit, but um, let, let's investigate some of the geological science. What what is interesting about Mars? What are some of those things that we can't wait to get human hands? Uh, to do on the surface of Mars, the the, the scientific uh, missions that, that we would want to accomplish for the Mars geology. Yeah, every time we sit down um, as scientists and try and come up with, you know, what are our science objectives for exploring Mars, um, finding evidence for extant life and past life, those that's almost always near the top of our list. Hmm. So. When we think about humans exploring Mars, we're looking. We're probably going to be centering that around looking for life, either life that's living there now, or whether or not, or or evidence for life in the past. Um, so, so we're so one of the things that we target when we're looking for life is evidence for water. So, um, if we know that water was someplace on Mars in the past, um, hopefully, a long-lived water. Um, that's the kind of place where we want to go and look for life. Um, so that it focuses on 
several different kinds of, of targets, like I mentioned a couple of them already, the sort of the sulfate minerals, these, these evidence for, for past liquid water. Um, the other place, that, and, and then the, the lava tubes are really interesting for, for potentially protecting little damp areas, the places where um, you might get ice forming um, in, the, in these lava tubes. Um, that, that could also be a haven for, um, for life. Um, the the other place that a lot of people tar, uh, are interested in is going to a delta. So there are places on Mars where we see these where past rivers have flown out, um, sort of out of the mountains and into these craters, and they create these delta deposits, just like the, the Mississippi River Delta. But if you imagine the Mississippi River Delta with all the water drained away, it sort of rises. It would be a positive feature it would be sticking out of the ground and that's what we see on mars is so in these craters the water's drained away and you see these these deltas these stacks of layered materials um that are sinuous a lot of sinuous um um, riverbeds and and that people are really interested in in going places like that because that's the place where you might uh preserve a lot of material because what happens is in a delta is stuff gets you know, it's coming down the river, and it gets quickly buried um, by the next stuff that comes. So you don't have a lot of time to have it be um, eaten or, um, or, or you know, uh, annihilated by radiation or mm-hmm. something like that. Now, one of the one of the objections to that is that you you know the the river is sampling just material at the surface. So that material at the surface might already not be the kind of stuff that you want to look for because that might be, you know, already this radiation, um, uh, you know, uh, exposed material that doesn't have um, life, essentially. And so so the delta is definitely a place to look for stuff that's sitting at the surface. Um, one of the other places that people really want to go look is underneath the surface. Um, we think that there's a lot of evidence for hydrothermal activity, warm water, lasting for long periods of time underneath the surface. Um, and, and you see exposures of these rocks at the surface, so you don't actually have to drill down to get there. And, um, and that, those, those uh, are really interesting rocks. They're called, we, with one of the interesting minerals to target there is serpentine, which is something that uh, we know forms in sort of warmer, uh, wetter environments. And, uh, and that that's uh, something that we might target um, with the extended mission for Mars 2020. So Mars 2020 is actually going to Jezero Crater, which is the next Mars rover mission. It looks a lot like Curiosity. It's got different instruments this time, but um, same kind of rover chassis. And uh, it's going to this place. It's going to um, investigate a delta deposit, and then it, and then in an extended mission, it might be able to explore some of these serpentine um, sort of clay-rich hydrothermal deposits So from the deeper subsurface. So hopefully we're going to get a little bit of both with that mission, um, and it will help us really understand where uh, to send humans as the most promising kind of uh, target. Yeah, I'm sure you're looking forward to uh, to uh, Perseverance landing here. I mean, at the time that this episode comes out, we'll, we'll just be a few short weeks away uh, from from landing there. So, will you be part of the teams there? Will you will have some some uh, something that you're going to be looking after for the Perseverance mission? 
Yeah, I mean, as a Mars scientist, I'm I'm definitely interested in the results, uh, and uh, we'll be we'll be uh, analyzing the data when when the science teams release it. But but I'm not on any of the of the rover science teams this time. Uh, yeah, but I'm sure you're you're definitely going to want to to get a hold of some of that stuff now. Um, understanding um, the. I guess we're we're talking about human missions here, and and I, th- I think there's a lot of excitement for for the rover landing that's coming up here shortly. But understanding the human aspect of things, what is nice about having um, humans on the surface of Mars to accomplish some of these uh, scientific objectives? When we have humans there, there's just so much more that you can do um, with regards to the kind of science um, activities. So one of the things that the rovers really struggle with, it takes them a long time, is just any time you interact with the surface, uh, because you have to wait a whole day to find out what happened. So any time you interact with the surface, you really need to just do it one step at a time. So you, you know, contact the surface, then you wait to see if you actually contacted the surface correctly. You know, then you could drill, you would drill a little ways and then stop, see, okay, wait, how far did we go? You know, you have to do this all in a, you know, each day cycle. You have to wait for the data to come back in order to understand what happened, you know. And and then it's if you're moving rocks around or, you know, you got to figure out where the rock landed before you keep going. So so there's so much that uh, takes such a long time when you're interacting with the surface. With regards to humans, um, there's so much they can do so quickly um, just I mean, one of the things that we do all the time in the field as geologists is is take a rock hammer and crack open a rock to look at what's inside. Um, <laughs> and that takes, you know, less than a minute. But it's just something that we can't do with a rover um, effectively. So, um, so that, so the, you know, something like that it makes things so much easier. And then likewise, just any kind of sampling that you're doing on the, in the surface um, can be extraordinarily speeded up with a human there or or just having a human nearby, um, you can do a lot with teleoperations um, if you are worried about um, contamination in certain areas. So what we've certainly talked about in uh, areas where we don't want any of the human contamination to enter, um, you could send a specially cleaned robot. And because you've got humans there, um, you the, the light delay is, would be small and you could um, you could operate pretty effectively. Is there anything we can learn from Artemis um, to, to kind of help out with some of these operations, making sure we don't contaminate different areas, you know, uh, just working through those surface operations, those geological expeditions on the, on the surface of the moon, developing the right tools? Um, is, there, is there something we can look forward to in Artemis that can help us out for, for the geological expeditions on, uh, on Mars? Yeah, I hope Artemis is an opportunity that we see used to really advance um, what uh, human exploration of outer space looks like um, with regards to, you know, planetary science. The, you know, we, we've got a lot of examples of tools um, and techniques that they used uh, during Apollo, and, you know, a lot of that is shovels and rakes and, and hammers and stuff like that, you know, we're going to want to use again, but... Uh, with the, the kinds of new technology that we have av- available to us, that there are just 
an enormous number of really interesting things that you might um, do to supplement and, and advance um, planetary science exploration of, of Mars or the moon. Um, and these are things that you could try out on the moon and, you know, and, and make sure that they work before um, taking them to Mars. Um, and, and a lot of this is, you know, robotic human interaction. So trying to make sure that you de- – so trying to design robots to do the kinds of things that robots do well so, and then allow the humans to do the things the humans do well so that you get the, really the most efficient um, uh, exploration that, that you can get. Because the amount of time that you have on the surface during uh, an EVA um, is very, very limited. Um, and so we're going to have to use the robots to do you know, as many things as we think you know, they can do most effectively um, while we save, the, save the, the kinds of things the humans can do most effectively for the humans. Um, and, and, you know, we're still, still trying to iron out all of that, that information. I mean, we've got a lot of examples of, of what that looks like uh, with regards to the robotic exploration that we've already done. Um, but there's, there's still a lot more to learn about how robots and humans could, could operate effectively together. And so, you know, I'm really looking forward to Artemis as being a, uh, a time when we uh, start to test out some of these ideas and start to, to make big strides with regards to how, how we explore planetary surfaces. And that time is coming up real soon too, so it'll be a it'll be a nice teaser for when uh, we see those astronauts on the surface of the moon conducting, you know, all kinds of science with with brand new tools. It'll be a nice teaser for for when we finally see those those boot prints on the on the red planet. Dr. Paul Niles, uh, thank you so much for coming on Houston. We have a podcast. What a what a great conversation! I learned so much about the Red Planet, and uh, you got me really excited for for what's to come and a lot of the things that we still need to find out about uh, working on the Moon or the, on Mars uh, that we can learn uh, on the surface of the Moon. So, uh, Paul, I really appreciate your time. Thanks so much. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me. Uh, I enjoyed the discussion as well. Hey, thanks for sticking around. I hope you enjoyed our conversation with Dr. Paul Niles and learned at least something about the Red Planet today. I know I definitely learned a lot. This was, I guess, the ninth episode in our installment of Mars Monthly uh, episodes we have at Houston. We have a podcast. You can check them all out uh, by going to our website. We have a collection of them. Uh, it's nasa.gov slash johnson slash hwhap slash mars dash episode. A- actually, you know what you should do? You should just Google or search wherever on uh, Houston. We have a podcast, Mars episodes. I bet you it'll come up. Uh, If you want to chat with us, we're on the NASA Johnson Space Center pages of Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Uh, Use the hashtag AskNASA on your favorite platform to submit an idea for the show, and just make sure to mention it's for us at Houston. We have a podcast. We have a lot of other podcasts all across the agency. You can check them out at nasa.gov slash podcasts. 
this episode was recorded on December 14th, 2020. Thanks to Alex Perryman, Pat Ryan, Norm Moran, Belinda Polito, Jennifer Hernandez, uh, Greg Wiseman, and Michelle Rucker. The next episode of our Mars Monthly series drops in February, and it's all about Martian spacesuits, so stay tuned. Thanks again to Dr. Paul Niles for taking the time to come on the show. Give us a rating and feedback on whatever platform you are listening to us on, and tell us what you think. We'll be back next week.